0: Welcome to the Change Book Radio Show with your host, Work Life Fit Expert, Deb Crow. Join Deb every week as she interviews the co-authors from all over the globe. They'll share their insights into self-empowerment with their personal stories and real-life experiences that will help your own personal development and touch every area of your life. Join Deb every Wednesday on Blog Talk Radio at 7 p.m. Eastern Time.
1: Good evening, everyone, and thanks for tuning in live with us. It's 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in Canada, and I can't believe that it's August the 2nd, 2017. I'm not sure where the summer is going, but it's going just a wee bit too fast for me, but I do look forward to every Wednesday with you. And I am honored and excited because tonight I have fellow co-author out of Book 12 with me, David Rebo. And let me tell you about David. He grew up in the Bronx, which is in New New York City. And you get a sense of who you are earlier in your life, which he's going to talk about from his chapter, which he titled A Fight to Change. David is really committed to contributing to conditions necessary to enable one's success. He is all about leadership, learning, and change, and is known to be an expert. He has experienced the world both professionally and personally, from living and working in three continents, to managing multiple career changes, to overcoming a car accident, and eight subsequent reconstructive hand surgeries, and to losing more than 75 pounds. David will tell you he's experienced it all. What's been his key to success? The drive to rewrite his narrative and not to succumb to the burden of circumstances, which that just resonates with me on so many levels. He has over two decades of coaching, training, advising, and what he calls, importantly, real life in the trenches experience. David partners with leaders and organizations to share, and he isn't just Relegated to the compartmentalized professional domain. In order to command over, we must live and breathe in every moment of our life. Leadership learning and change is not about a title, position, or power. It's about the commitment and preparation to our craft. So to say that I'm excited to interview David is an understatement. Uh, as always, I read these chapters every week because we are now in twenty seven countries. We're finishing up on book fourteen. And every week there is such a nugget in the talents that we have within our global community. So, David, welcome to the Change Book Radio Show.
0: Thanks for having me, Deb. I'm excited to be here.
1: Well, I'm going to give kudos to you because I know that you are living in the Middle East. And at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here in Canada... And I know that you got out of bed, and it's 3 a.m. there. So to say that you have grit and commitment is going to be a total understatement, okay?
0: Thank you. Thanks for the shout out. I really appreciate it. But I'm wide awake right now.
1: Well, I'm excited to interview for many reasons. So let's just delve right in. My first question is, how did you get connected to Jim Britt and Jim Lutz? And what was your decision to join our global community and, and craft your beautiful chapter for Book 12?
0: Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty simple story. Uh, Jim Britt uh, contacted me sometime uh, early summer last year. It was pretty heartfelt, the email, and I just said, you know what, let me, have a call, let me take him up on his call and see what that looked like. And I think we talked twice. Um, after his initial email, I think what got me was just an invitation to share and and be amongst a community of people who were all looking at the same thing and really was just about sharing wisdom uh, and being vulnerable because part of this community in, in order to step forward is really to share a part of yourself that will deeply resonate with other people and in doing so, you really have to step into vulnerability. So I think for me, that process was around just getting comfortable about sharing that piece of me, the part that would make the most sense, the part that would open up uh, some deeper understanding for, uh, for the people reading in the book. And once I made that decision, it was, it was pretty straightforward. But I think it was the heartfelt connection to just join a, a community of people who all were looking at the same thing and wanting to unlock the same kinds of things for people uh, moving forward.
1: I agree, and, and we have such a pool of talent and the synergy and collaborations, and, and just to be on the same page with such a large group of like minded individuals. I, I find it very comforting. And one of the things that really struck me with your bio was you talk about having command over how we must live and breathe, and it's not about a title or a position or power. And about three weeks ago, I chose to change how I project myself. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about that, and then I'd like to know how you decided to do that. I'm now calling myself authentically undefined because, like you, I have an extensive background with with many different titles and experiences. But I just decided that that's not who defines me, and I don't need initials after my name to be successful. And it was a real internal growth, if you will. So I love how you framed that in your bio. And I wanted to know how you came to that moment and was it related to your car accident?
0: That's a good question. I, I would say, and, and I love, I noticed that as well. I noticed that when I, I looked up your bio. I, I love that. Just as a side note, I th- I think I came to this a long time ago, but it's always been a theme for me in the in the background. I think the best way to to answer this is is kind of how the initial fire came up in me to kind of find another a path out. So you said earlier, I grew up in the South Bronx. So I grew up in, when I was born in seventy seven, New York. The Bronx was the poorest congressional district in in the entire uh, continental United States, and it was interesting because even before I you know, even before I took breath, I fell into a I fell into a pocket where I was just a statistic, you know, born to a a single single mother, a teenage mother. You know, there was more that I was identified with that was connected to my lack of success. So I, I think at the, in those days there was 70% chance of me uh, not finishing high school and 77 or 78% chance of me of entering the prison system. And so these are the kind of things that I, I noticed early on never resonated with me. I never understood or liked the idea that even though these were the statistics, these were the facts, these were the conditions, they also breed a kind of learn helplessness as well, because that's part of the contribution to being born in these types of environments. You can become a product of your environment if you don't have the right choice structure around you. And, you know, that coupled with, there had to be another way, you know, being poor wasn't a license to, to live without dignity. And I think that was it for me. You know, I just, it bothered me to see people who were trying to work hard, people who were struggling amongst people who also didn't see the need to live with dignity. Poverty wasn't, poverty isn't licensed to, I'm sorry, not poverty, but there's this relationship between poverty and ghetto, and I just didn't agree with being ghetto. Poor was just a part of my circumstances. It was something that I was born into, but it wasn't something that I had to say yes to for the rest of my life. And I think that always stuck with me. And so that narrative has evolved over time. But foundationally, the right to live with dignity was always something, you know, the right to, be, to, to walk with your head held up high and your chest out. It's just a choice that I, I choose to make despite what my bank account initially said when I was born.
1: I, I love that. And I love how you framed it and said it was your choice structure. and I totally get what you mean by that. So what I'm hearing from you and reading your chapter, I think it was foundational and pivotal for you when you had that talk with your high school football coach. So my question to you is, where along your time lineage of experience, where do you think you finally released your ability to let go of the anger?
0: That's a real good question, Deb. I, and it's funny you say linear because I find myself uh, so much nonlinear. There's so much learning along the way. I, I would say initially I, I started noticing things in college, but for sure once I, once I, had, once I uprooted my, my surroundings and I was living abroad in, in South Korea, had to find out. I had to find another way. It just anger wasn't working anymore. But it's and it was also just a, a recognition that it served its place, and that was a lesson that hadn't really landed yet for me. The pieces were there. The pieces, the puzzle was starting to form, but it just it wasn't making sense until one day I realized. Wow. I don't know if I saw it on TV or if it was a conversation in passing with somebody, but really. The, the connection that you know anger is depression is anger uh, anger that's projected outwardly started to sort of unlock some of that deeper understanding for me and, and the need or the need to carry and i think that's it you know when we look at anger at least for myself and let me just speak purely for myself i just noticed i was holding on to it it was it was like a bag i was carrying with me and the bag really wasn't the bag wasn't up to date. It didn't really function in the same way anymore. And I was choosing to carry it. And, and that, and that's it, that choice, the the recognition I was choosing to carry, it, even though it wasn't serving me anymore and how it was serving me really wasn't adding the kind of value that I needed in my life. It was, it was a big transition point. You know, I was at a place where it wasn't really surviving anymore. And I think that, was another key element uh, of learning that I needed to experience emotionally as well as mentally and physically. Um, I wasn't surviving. You know, in the good old days in New York, I was really learning how to survive. But in Korea, I had to learn how to live. And that was a fundamental shift. You know, because once you move past the state of surviving, you start to learn how to live. Now you're moving forward and you're learning how to thrive. And these are all new concepts for me. You know, I, was, I was running off fumes. It was almost like taking a shot of dopamine. Dopamine will get you really, really far, but it's not sustainable. And it's, it, you know, it plays havoc with your biochemicals. And, and that's what was happening for me. It was just starting to manifest. You know, the, the choice to stay angry, the choice to carry, to just carry this, it just wasn't resonating anymore with my internal DNA.
1: Well, and that's interesting, and and I love that the thread of all of this for you was learning along the way, and like you, I I consider myself to be a lifelong learner, and even if it means sometimes I have to unlearn something to learn a new skill, I don't look at that as a, a setback or regression. I just I just stay open to it. So my next question for you is what led you to south korea why as you reflect back because i know you're turning 40 this year have you had your birthday yet
0: yes <laughs> uh no so, my birthday is beginning right life is
1: beginning at 40 so what looking yeah. back how old were you when you landed in south korea and upon reflection why do you think you landed there
0: Oh my goodness, that is a that's a great question. I left I left New York City in two, in 2001, so I was 23. Um, to be honest, I had just finished two years of uh, of working as an educator in the New York City public school system. I was burnt out. I was I was completely burnt out, physically, mentally, emotionally, just burnt out. And I knew that if I stayed in York, at least it st- I started. Getting the sense that if I stayed in New York any longer, I wasn't going to be an educator, and I, and education was really important to me. And there was there was something there for me in my original, in my original story, in my original narrative around, you know, having come out of the Bronx to then give back and also help others who came out of the same lineage to help them find their own way. And so, being an educator was really important to my my original um, identity, self identity. So, I didn't want to give that up. Then I thought, you know what, let me take a break. Let me see what's available, what's out there. And because I had already studied abroad during my undergrad years in England, I knew that there was, there was always the potential to, to work abroad. And there were all these opportunities where you can be away for a year or less and still come back. And that was originally what happened. So, I just I started looking abroad. And Asia, Asia is just an easier place for Americans to work, uh, North Americans at, at that as well. You know, when you're looking at Europe, it's much more difficult for us to get the visa to work there. So Asia just popped out. There was just much more opportunities. In 2000, I knew that in 2002, South Korea was getting the World Cup. Um, It just kind of was serendipitous. In 94, the U.S. had the World Cup. And in 98, I was in France. So I thought, all right, let's just keep up this tradition. And that's how I settled on South Korea in particular. Um, if I had known a little bit more about uh, Seoul, South Korea, before I made the decision to go there, I don't know if I would have said yes. In hindsight, it was it was a great it was the greatest decision I ever made because it just gave me a new lease on life. It was it was everything I needed, and Seoul is a much denser city than New York than New York, much denser city, much uh, much more uh, populated city. But there was something about the rhythm of, of soul that was slower, and that was that was what I needed. That really was what I needed. New was just so fast that it it was that moment in the matrix. It was almost like the Matrix moment. And, and that, please tell me, you've seen the Matrix.
1: I have seen the matrix and I, I'm, I, I'm totally envisioning what you're saying because I've been to New York. I went to university just outside of New York and it's like warp speed.
0: Yeah. And it wasn't resonant. I love the energy of New York. It just wasn't resonating for me at the time. And as I said, soul was just so much bigger, but it was my matrix moment. It was where I was able to slow down and really see it see from a meta view what was going on. And I think that's another way to look at it as well. I couldn't get a meta view perspective on my situation in New York just because I felt like I couldn't see the the forest from the trees. But I was was learning how to see the forest from the trees in Korea. That was really part of my process.
1: Well, and I like what you said, the rhythm of soul and the calmness and... I felt that way when I was in Costa Rica and there's been a couple other places that I've traveled and I, Italy is another one. I I could totally see myself living in Tuscany, Italy because it's just, there's just a calmness there that you can't explain unless you've been there and experienced it because I, I also grew up uh, half of my life in the country and then my formidable years in the city and if you ask me, you know, where my preference would be, I'd go back to the country in a heartbeat. So I love the way that you (laughs) frame that. I want to go back to uh, when you left New York as an educator, because I, again, I really resonate with another point that you said about feeling burnt out. And I was a medical case manager for 23 years, and I closed my practice in 2011 because I was burnt out. Do you think being a teacher, an educator, or a master teacher, do you think a level of that burnout was a bit of compassion fatigue? And if so, how come? Uh,
0: I say definitely yes. Um, I say yes, and I would also say that, unfortunately, this... I really want to be mindful of my words because there's still a special place in my heart for educators and i'm I'm finding as i as i the the longer I stay away and the more i'm I'm exposed to different um, different systems of education, the more I realize the support system that's in, that's been set up in public schools in the u s doesn't doesn't breed the kind of mental health continuity that we need in order to have teachers experience what they're experiencing as well as the the students that it's producing. So, you know, the lack of success that we see in public schools is is not an accident. And the fact that we see, you know, young teachers, you know, I think there's a, there's a couple of paths. If you, if you, there's a cycle of two to three years and then a cycle of five to seven years. Uh, that teachers kind of stay within the public school system. It's it's not an accident that it's one of the most stressful jobs in the world, um, but you, you find that it's as stressful as first response, uh, uh, people who work as first responders. Compassion fatigue. I, I think I've burnt out twice the, my last year in New York City as an educator, and part of it was that. it's It's really not – it's hard to – it's hard to harden. It's hard to to be jaded by certain situations and still be successful. Be effect- I think the word is rather effective at your job because you're still dealing with human beings, and despite whatever budget um, shortcomings public education has, you know intuitively you want to try to give as much as you can within within reason and make sure that you're helping. You're helping young people. And I was working with with high school students, so there was an imperative to make sure that there was a bridge between high school to to college or high school to vocational training or high school to whatever it is that they were about to venture into. It was just really hard to keep perspective when there was just so much human suffering, you know, all around you. I mean, many times it was like being on an island and by yourself, and you wanted to be collaborative, but so many, so many people in your surrounding were on different uh, parts of their journeys that they learned different coping mechanisms. You know, sometimes they would just kind of check out, just to kind of get through the day. You know, I knew many people who would sort of um, uh, medi self-medicate, so that they can also kind of deal with the reality as well. And I, I didn't want to go down that path, and that's what made burnout um, that's what made burnout a reality that's why it made burnout twice that last year what it was and my outlets weren't there the structure for uh, positive outlets to keep that balance and to allow for recovery because that's the thing when you stretch yourself in such a way that in a, in a role that's so emotionally draining the opportunity to recover is important because that's, that's the key to resiliency and I think that was that was the trigger that I was missing.
1: I fully see that. And I, I agree with you when I was case managing and I, I think there's a parallel there to teaching. You have exposure to so many levels of psychosocial and social economics that it's hard to balance. And, and like first responders, you get into a mode that I like to call hypervigilant and, we forget sometimes that we're human beings, not human doings, and we're not meant to Mm. work at that level of hypervigilance. And you just keep going and going and going until your body says, okay, if you're not going to shut down, I'm going to shut you down. So it's really interesting to hear from an educator, master teacher's point of view, that that was the exposure that you have. And it's hard because you're trying to teach these children of many different ages, and it's those other elements of psychosocial and social development that really take your time to ensure that you're setting them up for success for their next platform of school, whatever that may be. So I, I really, really understand and feel what you were going
0: through, and, and I get it.
1: And it's, uh, But it's, you know what? If I asked you if you'd go back to change anything, would you?
0: No, I wouldn't change anything. Now exactly. and funny you asked that question, Deb. My my wife and I just um my wife and I she asked me the other day something about the car accident and I mentioned it in the book and she was she was looking for clarification and what I what I was trying to say to her is I wouldn't change anything about the car accident because of the learning that came out of it. Uh the, the to be confronted with um to be confronted with a shattered self identity. I, I really needed that, and it's not something I wish on anybody in the sense that I don't wish, I don't wish anyone to have to go through a, a car accident, the experience of a car accident, the traumatic ex- experience of a car accident, and also what it takes to recover from a car accident. But the, the confrontation with a um, self-identity that wasn't working anymore the The learning how to be vulnerable not just in given situations but to how to how to onboard that as part of your your standard operating system was really important for me it it, it gave me it gave me a bridge to being humble so I always had access to humble just because by nature is one of my values but the car accident definitely broke some of it broke some of my old structure and allowed me to rebuild myself, almost like the phoenix burning being reborn in ash, uh, being reborn in fire. It really was a monumental or a moment in my life.
1: Well, and I want to talk to you about that because I looked after people who sustained catastrophic injuries from car accidents. And first, I want to tell you that did you know that us left handed people, there's only 11% of us on the planet, did you know that we are are, intellectually brilliant? I thought that, yes. (laughs) We are, it's proven. Um, they say we actually use both sides of our brain, and I know that I do, and the only reason I know that is because I, I grew up with a sore right eye, so my, my right eye was patched for most of my neurodevelopment years, so I, when I saw that you were left-handed, I thought, okay, I just have too many things in common with David, but <laughs> no joking aside, I want to know did the the fight that you worked so hard to let go of with your anger, was it resurfaced with the accident or did it allow you to be in more of a reflective state psychologically because you've had several operations, you lost an incredible amount of weight. So if you will, um, just share a little bit about that with the listeners for us.
0: Definitely. Um I think it was cyclical. Um, I wasn't. I didn't know I was in a loop of um, not accepting what what my condition was for a few months. Yeah, I Definitely was experiencing some PTSD, unbeknownst to me. I. I now I can see it in hindsight. Um. I'm sorry. The, when you said that, it, I, I went back to the accident. Somewhat. Can you just repeat the second part of your question? Sure.
1: When, you, when, when we were talking earlier about the anger and the fight of letting it go, when you were going through your recovery and, and the numerous
0: oh, injuries it, yes.
1: you have, did
0: it resurface for you? It, it did, but in a very different way. And I, can, I, I noticed the subtlety. So it's funny because there was always a voice I can hear. It always characterized itself as a voice I can hear. You know, that voice kind of urging me to move forward, and, and it, it, was, it served as a motivating factor. But the voice was, it was very subtle. There was a sadness of the condition, and I noticed that I wasn't angry in the same way anymore. It's just I wasn't accepting of it. But I had, a great, I had a great team of people all around me just really kind of stabilizing my mood. You know, my physiotherapist was the same every day, you know I was going to therapy uh, four times a week. He treated me the same way, and I guess of course he through experience he knew uh, what to expect from someone in this type of um, recovery from this type of injury, uh, relearning some of those uh, very basic hand movements the The steady calmness of the professionals I was with you know between him my surgeon and my um my um, therapy doctor, the, the person who prescribed the, the actual uh, program of exercises week in and week out, they really just calmed me down and they helped me normalize. They helped me normalize it, and I just I started seeing things with um, with clear eyes and in a in a, a softening heart. I think my heart was heavy just because of the condition. I didn't. You know, no one wants to be in that state. No one wants to, to have to entertain, you know, amputating anything. And but that was my reality for a few months. But they were good. They were just. They were just so calming. They they, they presented such a calming presence that recovery was never an issue. I always had the faith I was going to recover. But it it wasn't the recovery physically that was. Um, as important it was what was going on for me. I was recovering from I was recovering from the story I was telling myself initially. you know you had to be strong, you had to be fierce, you had to be you had to be relentless uh, in order to to survive and thrive and achieve and here were these people you know shaking that narrative to its core, and i was I was really having to put in its place new structures that made sense for where I was because I was wanting to be angry and I was finding that this was soft in my heart. It was, I, had, it was, I had to expend more energy to stay angry than I did just to be naturally happy. And I found myself smiling. <laughs> I, found my smile, I found myself smiling after a couple of months, almost every day going to therapy and, and spending time with these people. Um, and even just spending time with people who are asking about my recovery that just became my default setting. My default setting uh no more was to be angry. And it was it was as subtle as that, but I, I realized I had to make the conscious choice to change my narrative because I was spending more energy trying to hold on to my old narrative of 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 being fierce and being and being angry in order to survive and, and thrive. But I was it was a narrative that wasn't serving me and it was a narrative that was no longer true, and I think that was, that was, a, there was a moment where I, I had to honor um, that part of my life and honor, you know, the, the place, uh, what it had served for me in my journey, and also realize that the new narrative that I had wasn't going to be the only narrative I was going to live with moving forward, but it was a narrative that I wanted to construct to move forward because that was what I needed to serve me. You know, even today, there's a fierceness that still lives in me, but it looks different and it feels different. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a much more subtle confidence that's in, intensely fierce versus being very aggressive with that fierceness. I it's well, a premium, How, does that, it how does, does that land there? It, was ex- it,
1: it, it You know what? It resonates with me because with my experience case managing large teams of Different clinicians whom you worked with. I'm happy to hear that they were a calmness for you and that it was a slow, methodical, calm recovery. And did you regain function in your left hand? Because I I know it is your dominant hand.
0: So, a quick update yeah, there's no, I still have 10 digits. I recently saw my surgeon uh, a few months ago just to have a check. We do an annual checkup there's still a chance that um my in the, my right sorry my left ring finger may be amputated at some point but it it is what it is it, it doesn't it's it's okay it's okay um the mobility in my hand is is still functional i think i'm maybe I, I know when we look at how to issue um the status of handicap, there's, there's some tests you have to take. So I can close my hand, so my, I'm technically not handicapped, but my hand is, you know, if you compare it to my right hand, it is um, visibly deformed. But in terms of functionality, the only thing I still have difficulty with is, is opening the door to so my apartment with uh, my left hand, so using the keys. So sort of those micro-fine movements are still somewhat difficult. I may drop my keys and then have to pick them up and then open the door, try to open the door again. But outside of that, you know, I, I'm still able to go to the gym. I'm still able to hold my son. I'm still able, I'm still able to do things. It's just that I'm, I'm conscious that my hand is not 100%. Well,
1: and I love that you used use the word handicapped. I, I'm a real word junkie. And the definition of handicap is a, is a circumstance that makes progress or success difficult, which is really the whole lineage of your life. And it's just funny that you chose to use that word. And your hand injury has not defined you. It's not a label for you. It's just what happened. And you have figured out, I'm sure, lots of different compensatory strategies that work for you, and your life goes on.
0: But I tell you what, you just said something that in, that just inspired um, another way of thinking. What I love about scars—they is tell stories. You know, I you know, often I, I share with people all the different stories behind all my scars. But in the way you just described, handicap—and I'm going to borrow this—and I'm going to credit you later, Deb. You know, my injury, my hand injury, uh, the state of the way my hand looks is almost like a trophy. So you know, in the way we when we play sports, we we win we win trophies for athletic competitions. I wear, I wear my hand. I I, um, I display my hand with the same kind of pride. Actually, it's a, it's a trophy. It reminds me of a milestone that I've crossed and achieved. So I wear scars, and I, I I'm constantly um I'm constantly reconnected to my experiences, but the, this. You know, every day I look at my hand and just reminds me that I can handle a lot, and that's important to me. Because I have, I have an anchor. Essentially, my hand is an anchor to some of the most proudest moments of my life and the things that I have to overcome to make sure that I'm here today. But that I'm here today functionally, uh, the way that I'm, the, the way that I choose to function, both mentally, physically, emotionally and how I show up as a person. So the hand represents a lot a lot of that for me.
1: Well, I'm sure it's a wonderful conversation piece, especially when you're amongst children, because they are just so innocent and, and right away would, would look and say, what did you do to your hand or what happened? And and they say it with love <laughs> and just general compassion, right? Yeah. But what I wanted to yeah. just kind of wrap up on that point with you is, Looking at that trophy, and I I just love that beautiful image that you described, it it exudes who you are as a person, and it takes you back to how you say the rhythm of your soul. You are resilient. You are tenacious. And you, since you were that young boy in the Bronx, have elevated to a global entrepreneur and a man who constantly and repetitively just lives with grit. And it's not what happens to us. It's what we learn and how we move on from. And I think you've beautifully done that with your career and balanced it with your personal life. And I'm just just—I'm so taken back with how many things we have in common. And it just goes to show me that this world is really a small price.
0: It definitely is. It definitely is.
1: So I want to be intrigued with my next question because, we had another co author in the Change Book series who commutes from Texas to Dubai on a regular basis. And I was invited to speak there um, last November, and I wasn't able to go. And I will get there someday. So tell us where you're living, and, and what you're doing, and, and what you're up to for the last little bit of 2017.
0: Oh, i would be happy to. Um, it's it's an interesting part of the world. It's um, to be in this part of the world is is a special it's a special experience, especially having already come and spent some time in Far East Asia. Very different, the same continent, but very different cultures and very different histories. Um, it's it's extremely hot here, so I think people from Texas can relate to it, but you you definitely get used to the heat you know, where I'm I'm, uh, currently located is the capital of the same country of Dubai, which is the uh, United Arab Emirates. It's very cosmopolitan, very diverse, and it's a place where, you know, people from all over the world come together and we're actually helping to build the country. I mean, there are more expats, there are more uh, expatriates living in this country than there are locals. So when you look at you know, the rapid development of the country, you know, a lot of us can actually say we we took part of that, whether it's metaphorical or whether it's literal in in the building of the country. And so I I really appreciate the opportunity to to take part in that, you know, and how I'm contributing is to leadership development, you know, organizational learning. This is the space that that I sit in, you know, that I've been sitting in for the past four or five years, the transition out of um, higher education and into career development and learning and development, HR. You know, I've more successfully uh, positioned myself to work in uh, leadership development, and organizational learning. Um, what I'm up to for the rest of the year is interesting. A lot more public speaking. Um, I'm still waiting for confirmation, but there's a there's a there's an opportunity for me to talk at a at a TED talk here in Dubai in November. So I'm excited about that. Um, there's some, there's another talk that's coming up at a conference in Dubai that it's a medical conference. And this is, this is, this is fantastic because, you know, a a goal of mine was to be able to bring in this kind of, this kind of um, approach it has been something that I've been wanting to bring into healthcare just for my experience as a patient. And so I have an opportunity to talk at a patient care conference in Dubai that's being sponsored by the Cleveland Clinic from the U.S. Because there's, a local, there's two local institutions that bear uh, their accreditation, and so they're driving this conference. So I'll be able to talk about leadership development and, and apply it to patient care, which I think is which is just kind of full circle for me as we're talking about this, as, it, as it's coming up dramatically. Um, I'll be in Bulgaria, of all places, in a couple of weeks. Um, my mentor coach, because my, my window into organizational learning and leadership development was born out of the fact that I am a coach and I'm nearing master certified coach status, and which just really represents the, the commitment to getting better at my craft. But I've been invited by my mentor coach to take part in a very unique training On emotional, on emotional healing and emotional training, how to bring that into my practice. So it's taking place um, in a city just outside of Sofia, Bulgaria. It's inside the, it's really inside of nature. So the there are no distractions, and we'll really be immersed in this experiential training that we'll be experiencing um, firsthand. That we'll be able to bring to our clients as well. So it's a new tool in the toolbox that I'll be able to incorporate. um, with the multifaceted clients that I do work with. Um, in, the same, in the same breath, uh, is what I'm also doing is in this part of the world, I sit as a coach leader for the International Coach Federation. I'm their vice president to the board of directors for the United Arab Emirates, so trying to move forward the profession of coaching, professionalizing it with, uh, with best, pa- uh, best practice standards, uh, criteria, also, helping organizations um, within that mandate to adopt a, a culture of coaching why it's important, what's the return on investment and in this part of the world there's really a drive towards helping uh, internal employees reach a state of happiness at the workplace and so mapping happiness ha- mapping coaching, mapping the impact of coaching meta skills being utilized by leaders at the workplace how that how that, co- how that has a correlational relationship with uh, employees at the workplace, happiness, increased productivity, and also increased quality of life because I also see that the work that I do is not within a vacuum. So I try to make sure that we always sit at the net of view and I help my, my organizational clients see that everything we do is within the scope of CSR or business for social responsibility. So the people that we work with at the workplace, you know they go home to families, and so how do we make sure that we're responsibly uh, uh, looking after our people? So in the workplace, yes, you're going to have people who are committed to eight to ten hour workdays, and yes, people are being compensated. But how are we also taking out taking responsibility for the impact that we're having? Because most of our people, you know, most of us will spend, you know, anywhere between seventy percent of our adult life within a work environment. So there's a great responsibility there in organizations to be mindful of our people when they clock out. They're going home to a family, and what's the state, you know, know, what is the state that we're sending our our people back home to? So I also map that as well, and that's part of what I do with organizational learning, just looking at the bigger picture. Um, I also work with a company called People Qe based in the States and Minnesota, but we have an office here in Dubai, and I serve as their regional uh, consultant and, and senior faculty for coach development as well. So it's, it's, a, it's, a great, it's great work. I see, myself as a, I see myself as helping build an army of soldiers who are just doing the good work, you know, producing high-quality, high-caliber, high-functioning, high-empathy people. And we strategically are able to, to to touch the right people and the right um, the right stages in organizations to really impact change and I think that's the best way to put it i'm I'm just really proud to be able to be a part of growing the army of people who are making change in the world literally and figuratively.
1: Well, I'm just honored to be talking to you and and to be a co-author in Book 12 with you, and I I think you're just an amazing asset to our community. Um, You definitely have to do a TED Talk, and I definitely (laughs) want to link when it's done because I want to watch it. And I'm really happy that you're going to be offering your perspective as a patient at a medical conference, and I think it gives you an opportunity to compliment and really be mindful and present to paint the picture of your recovery because everybody is so quick to be concerned and offer criticism and complain. And whenever I see a window for opportunity to compliment, which is every day, by the way, I'm just a total gratitude junkie, I really Mm. hope that you will will share the beautiful discovery that you had in your recovery, but more important, give back to those people the kudos that they deserve because I've never had anyone describe their rehabilitation and recovery the way you framed it for me. And I think Western medicine, it's a very, it's a certain kind of mindset. And I know you see that as a leadership expert. So for you to come in as a leadership expert, David, and, and speak from a different voice, being a personal voice and a personal experience, I think that would be hugely impactful. The other thing um, that you talked about was the concern for employees and and what you're doing there. That just made me smile from ear to ear because I took my transferable skills as a case manager, and I now do coaching for businesses and individuals on work-life balance. And that is huge important to me because after five, there is a family. And just knowing that that person can go home and disconnect and shut down I love that work because I'm I'm working on both sides of, of the fence, if you will, and I'm I'm getting to people ahead of the curve before they get off on short-term long, uh, short-term disability claims, and more importantly, mm. if they are on short-term, I'm getting them back so it doesn't turn into long-term disability claims. So I just love the synergy of of the work that we're both doing because it's so parallel so I want you to to toot your horn now because I know that you are in the top 100 for best global coaching so tell us how that came about and like super congratulations to you
0: thank you Deb yeah I'm smiling as you brought that up I actually forgot (laughs) I just got so connected to us having this conversation yeah I my goodness that's um that was a proud moment I think I tell you what, my wife was more excited than I was. I think I was a little bit in shock initially. Um, I was contacted by um, uh, an organization called the CHRO. It's an acronym for the Chief Human Resources Officer. Uh, It's a nonprofit organization that hosts uh, uh, an annual conference in Europe. They have a version of it um, in Asia. And their team just researched me, you know, I'm I'm pretty public so you can see a lot of my work I'm pretty digital so you'll find me online and I was recommended by one of my clients and so they did some vetting there once once the organization came to talk to me by that point they already made their decision because they had corroborated uh, much of what it what they needed to hear about me and it was it was amazing experience I think it didn't hit me until I actually got on site in India. We It was hosted in India. And I was just amongst, I was amongst my peers and it was a, it was a fantastic feeling. It was a fantastic feeling to be around that many people and to not have to wear a mask. We were completely naked. We all knew, we could all see each other. It didn't have to say too much uh, with words, you know, the, the recognition of people looking and clapping and, and really smiling at your direction was really validation for for the hard work and the commitment. But I tell you what, it, it was hard work in the sense that nothing comes easy, but it's it's just work I'm passionate about. And if I hadn't won the award, I'd still be doing this work. I think the fact that I won the award is is really cool. It's really cool. But I don't think that's still it. I think there's still more to come. I I, I can feel it tomorrow. I still feel very young in my profession. <laughs> I mean, I'm as you, as you said earlier, I'm just turning point. I still feel young. I still I still feel like I can. I'm in my mid 20s and life is just beginning. My son is only two years old, so we're we're really at the early stages of something really great happening. Yeah, and, and I'm entering another phase of my life, a new narrative new narratives are coming up. I'm really understanding you know my original I'm, I'm understanding my origins a lot a lot more deeply uh, today. You know the TED Talk will really put that into focus, you know, the theme that I'm coming to the TED Talk with. but it's it's just great to be recognized and be amongst a community of people who are willing to to do this kind of work. And I have to give a shout-out. My my wife's excitement brought it into perspective. I just saw it as another milestone, but I think her excitement helped me to slow down and just breathe in and, and enjoy it like a really good meal. Sometimes we eat too quickly. We're not really mindful when we eat, and so we're still a little bit hungry, and we haven't really tasted our food. But seeing how much she was proud, just helped me to with the moment and just enjoy like a, a, a fine three course meal. And I could still taste well, it today.
1: I, I think it was, as you would say, your choice structure. And I think you gave yourself a moment in time to feel the rhythm of your soul and, and see the depths of everything you've gone through just come to fruition and be, recognized amongst your peers and uh, i I just I, I can't even tell you how much I've enjoyed this interview I, I think I'm going to be bouncing for about two hours after I get off the phone here with you I just I love like you I love being around positive upbeat optimistic like-minded people and I do believe the best is yet to come from you. I still believe the best is to come from me, and I'm 51. And like you, I don't feel 51. I don't act 51. <laughs>
0: you look great. And right. it's a I number. You, you look great, yeah.
1: I it is. It really some, is. I'm kicking some 20- and 30-year-old butts at the gym. So and they're like, I wish my mom was like <laughs> you. And it's like, okay, I'll take I loved that. It.
0: I love it. But you, you know what? I a.m. Sorry, I just want to acknowledge you. Deb, you made 3 a.m. all the more worth it.
1: Well, I appreciate it. I was going to say, are you going to have a coffee and just dig into something for the day, or are you going back to bed? <laughs> I hope that I was able to uh, bring you as much joy as I'm awake, so it's going to be hard
0: to go back to bed. I, I know for sure. I, I have Actually, it's funny. I have to drive to Dubai. I have some work uh, uh, tomorrow morning in Dubai, but I think because I'm already awake, in about an hour I may just go for a run. I like to start my day. With there you mind. go. There you
1: go. Well, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for getting up at 3 in the morning and talking to me for the last 50 minutes. And I just think that you are such a humble, kind man, and I really want to keep in touch with you. And I wish you Likewise. nothing but yeah. ongoing, ongoing success, my friend. And please keep in touch and uh, just keep shining your light.
0: Thank you. And, Deb, I just want to acknowledge you. Thanks for creating this platform. Thanks. Thank you for allowing future, for uh, past, current, and future authors, a platform to continue to share their message, to continue to express their narrative. I really appreciate that you've, you've taken the, the step into this domain to allow that to breathe even even further.
1: Well, it's it's an honor and a privilege for me and uh I get to talk to the coolest people every Wednesday night from all over the world. So, not too many people can say that. So, on that note, That's I a will cool let job. You yes, go it for is. It is a cool job. I will let you go for a run, <laughs> and you keep us you keep us privy to that TED Talk and all the great things that you're doing and again, just wish you all the best and thanks again, David.
0: Thank you, Debbie. You take care.
1: You too. Just a wonderful interview with David Rebo from Book 12, who I am also in Book 12 with him. And I love that his chapter, A Fight to Change, just really encompasses his life and how he's grown. And just to hear him talk about the rhythm of his soul and how he has grown as a person, as a husband, as a father. And he doesn't even think that the best is is here yet. So how motivating and inspiring is that? So I want to thank you for tuning in to the Changebook Radio Show tonight. And I will be back next week with another amazing author from the Change Book series. So I wish everybody a great week. And for my fellow Canadians, it's a long weekend for us, so we have next Monday off to celebrate the Civic Holiday. So thanks again. This is Deb Crow with the Change Book Radio Show. And I'll be back here next Wednesday, August the 9th at seven PM Eastern Standard Time. Take care.